Good morning, church family. There you are. I can start to see you. My name's Adam. I am the associate pastor here at Antioch, and I have the honor of picking up where we left off. We are in a series as a church called Eyes of Faith, and we're going through Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 11. And so if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to go ahead and start turning to Hebrews 11. But as you turn there, I'd like to give some hopefully faith-building testimonies. Can I do that? Well, even if you said no, I'm going to give it anyway. But thanks for the permission. Um, I and my family and I had the awesome privilege of uh, going with a team from our night school, another plug for doing the discipleship school. So we went with our team and we got to go to Thailand. And then on the back end, my family went to Cambodia to visit some of our people from our local church that now live there. And we got to encourage them, be with them for four days. And it was amazing. By the way, they're doing awesome. You would be so proud of our people. The way they, they burn for Jesus, the way they live for the kingdom of God, it is so inspiring. It's like I, I come back going, I want to live like this. Um, and you'd also be incredibly proud of the team I am, of the team that I got to go with to Thailand. These people love Jesus. They gave time, money, energy. Uh, they had to navigate lots of travel. I, we, well, I don't know how many flights everybody else did. My family did 10 flights in two and a half weeks. So we're talking like lots of travel and lots of long bus rides and all kinds of stuff. But three quick testimonies, at least from my story. I'm, ask any one of them. Find somebody, say, tell me what God did. I want to know what God, tell me the God story of what God did while you were there. But I just want to share a couple quick testimonies. One was, uh, there's a, a three and a half day period where a group of eight of us got to go down on the peninsula of, of Thailand and we got to meet and tried to reach this Mokin people or Morkin people. It's M-O-K-E-N, but this sounds like it has an R in it. Morkin? I don't know. But anyway, it's these sea gypsies. Doesn't that sound cool? I mean, just to say that, like, oh, I went and, you know, for the kingdom, ministering to sea gypsies, you know, it just sounds so cool. I was like, sign me up. But it's, it's these people who for 10 months of the year, they live out in the ocean and they literally like live on the ocean. They dock on, they connect all their boats and they have like these floating villages and they don't even come and land most of the time. And then for two months of the year during monsoon season, they come, they live on the shore. And then there's a small percentage of them that live year round, but it's mostly the women and the children who live year round right on the shore where they, the, the husbands and the brothers would come back and forth. And so there's 4,600 people, historically no believer, no follower of Jesus in this people group. And there's been a resistance to the gospel for ever since the group was founded. They, they're technically Thai people, but yet their skin is darker and they have curly hair. They're beautiful people. Um, and they have their own dialect of language that they can also speak beyond uh, just the typical Thai language. And so we're there, we're ministering to them, loving them. And there's a guy that we're supporting and his name's Kong. And Kong is from Bangkok. And he is a 34-year-old, 34-year-old, educated, wealthy, middle, upper-class guy who has his heart arrested for the lost who had not heard of Jesus. And so he became a missionary in his own country to a place where there's an unreached people group so that they would hear about Jesus. And so we joined him to help minister to these people. Well, he's been there for 19 months trying to make a way for these people to know Jesus. And he was having incredible opposition to all the adults. None of the adults want anything to do with it. But he started just helping the kids because all these parents were gone all day or sometimes for months at a time, like crazy periods of time. And so he started doing after school programs for the kids and help making sure the kids were fed, teaching them English, just loving them. And so while we were there, I had the opportunity, this sounds really cool too, I got to meet with the chief of the Mokin people. Doesn't that sound cool? You know that sounds cool. It's like National Geographic level. 
right? And so I'm sitting in this little shack hut thing, and I'm with one of the long-term Antioch workers. I'm with Kong, the guy that we're here to support. And then I'm with the chief, and we're just sitting there, we're talking, and she's talking about how concerned she is about her people. And she said that, um, that you know, her people are, are not educated, that they're all fishermen, and that she's afraid they're becoming less relevant for the world around them, and that they're going to go into greater levels of, of poverty and despair. And so she's like, I don't know what to do. And, she, and then she starts talking about how everybody talks poorly about their people, how they're not as attractive as the rest of the Thais, or how they're, you know, they smell like fish, even, is one of the things she said. And so then what was awesome is I got this opportunity just to tell her how much that was a lie. I was like, there was just this moment where I was like, this is what God thinks of you and your people. And I just started talking about their beauty and their worth and their value and how significant they were. And she sits there, and I'm not saying it was all me, but it was just this awesome opportunity to be a mouthpiece of what God thinks about this people group. And as we're sitting there talking, all of a sudden she goes, you know what? And she looks at Kong, she goes, I want whatever you have. And he goes, excuse me? And she goes, yeah, you have full permission to minister to our people and teach them English. I understand this might change our culture. Some of our kids might not become fishermen and they might end up going to the university. It might change our way of life, but we need what you have. And he was like, okay. And then she stands up and she goes, I'm done. And she walks out the room. I was like, she has spoken, you know? And I was like, yes, ma'am. You know, it was, it was incredible. I was like, all right. And Kong was Elated. I mean, he was like, this is the most progress in one moment that I've had over 19 months of trying to reach these people. Another testament to these people is that there's four people now that have given their life to Jesus of this people group. They're all, they're all teenagers. They're like 15, 16-year-old kids, but they're now the leadership of Kong's ministry to reach their people group. Isn't that cool? Another testimony is while we were down there, we kept going house to house to these little huts and we would tell people about the Lord and we'd bring gifts to them like food, like eggs and rice and things like that. And we would ask if we could pray for them and they would, and they would let us. And so there was this one hut we went to, it had these five women that were between the ages of 68 and 70. They were cousins and sisters kind of all living together. And then they had a, a 22-year-old granddaughter and then a, a baby great-grandson that was all living at this house. And while we're there, we're talking to them about Jesus, telling them we want to pray for them. And they're kind of, they're polite, but they're not like totally on board. You could feel some of that. And, and finally, we, we, uh, we were with one of the long-term workers, and he starts talking to this woman, but he, she can't hear him. Like, as, as he's talking to her, he realized, oh, she's deaf. So he's like asking, Can, is she deaf? And like, yeah, yeah, she's deaf. So he's like screaming at her. She's like three feet away, and he's like, hey, how are you? I mean, just screaming at her. And she's going, huh? No, no, I can't. Like, she couldn't hear a thing. So we're like, well, let's, let's pray for her hearing. And so we get around her, our team gets around her, we start praying for her. And it's like a, a minute prayer. I'm telling you, we're not that fancy. We're like, God help, you know, uh, is our prayer. And all of a sudden, this woman starts talking back to him as, as they're talking, as if she can hear what he's saying. So me of little faith, I'm like, hey man, I need you to cover your mouth because I, I think she's reading your lips. Like that was, that was my little faith, right? And so then, so he covers the mouth and he's like, can you hear me? Da, da, da. And she's like, yeah, just talking to him. And all of a sudden he goes, she goes, yes, I can hear what you're saying right now. Like God completely healed this deaf woman. So we got a photo. If you want to throw the first photo up, the lady that's doing this with her hands, that's because she is saying thank you because she just got her hearing back. So that woman right there in the middle just radically got healed from being completely deaf to hearing because our God is a healer. Amen. Does that not build the faith? Come on. So we're all jazzed about that. And then we end up, there's more to the story, but I don't have time, unfortunately. But God did really cool stuff. That's all you need to know. 
And my last testimony I want to give is there was another time where we were in a different part of the country. And my wife and I got to go to this area that was, it was a long drive, it's far out. There's, not, there's only one single church in an hour and a half circle area representing the gospel. So one single church. And the only representation, there's 40,000 people in this people group. And there historically has been zero believers, 40,000 people. Then uh, 11 years ago, this husband and wife moved there to start this church in the middle of all of it. And, and it looks like farmland and countryside, but there's one little church. And in the last 11 years, they've had 19 people give their life to Jesus. And then another woman who gave her life to Jesus somewhere else, but then moved back. So there's 20 represented believers in the last 11 years of these 40,000 people. So while we're there, we go to that woman who had given their life to Jesus earlier. We went to her house and we got to meet with her, her brother, Twelm. And as we're with Twelm, he's 76 years old, and he is a lifelong Buddhist, devout Buddhist, very resistant to the gospel. And within a 30-minute time of just praying with him, blessing him, talking about God's heart for him, the man chose to give his life to Jesus. So can we have a photo of, of, of him? Look at that. Look how itty-bitty he is. Or look how massive I am. <laughs> I'm like, he could fit in my leg. It's actually, for, he's, he's 10 feet behind me. It's one of those illusions, you know what I'm talking about? But I was like, oh my gosh. And here's another photo of him. And this is the moment he's praying. If you want to throw the next photo, this is when he's praying to give his life to Jesus right here. In this moment, he's going from death to life right there. Isn't that amazing? That, the woman with us, that's the wife of her and her husband are the pastors of that local church. And she was, she was like this was not in vain. Our trip here was not in vain. Like, this, is, this is everything. And she was talking about how big of a deal it was for a 76-year-old male, devout Buddhist, to give his life to Jesus. And so it was, it was incredible. So what's a little side note is the sister who'd given, who's been praying for him, she said she's been singing the song, you know, there is power, power, wonder working power. You know the song? She's been singing this over her brother for 17 years. 17 years, she says, every day I've been singing this song over him. So, sorry, I get emotional. Like, but that he would come to know the Lord. And so we're sitting there and he'd just given his life to Jesus and we all sang it together and he's in the middle singing it with us about how the blood of the lamb has washed over him. You're going, it is worth it, right? It's like, amen. So, so just, just some testimonies of why we are who we are. We are a people on mission. The gospel isn't for us to sit in the spiritual jacuzzi and just feel comfortable in this room. People are lost and they need to know about Jesus. But they need people who are faith-filled, willing to sacrifice and step out in discomfort so that others might know the gospel. Amen? And that's what we're committed to be here at Antioch. Amen? Okay. That's just a little teaser. We're going to now open to Hebrews 11. I just wanted to share some update of what God's doing. So in Hebrews 11, I'm going to give some context real quick. Well, let me read our passage. We're going to be in verses 13 through 16. It says this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things so that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith or the Chapter of Faith. There's different names, but we know it's kind of the hallmark of where faith is described, what's going on. And Hebrews 11 verse 1 is where we actually get the definition of faith. 
And this is what it says. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So faith is the assurance, like the confirmation. It's the title deed. It's the yes and amen of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen or the conviction or the belief that the spiritual reality supersedes the natural reality. Do you know that there's a spiritual reality that is more real and it's layered on top of our everyday life, the natural reality? And so part of living in faith is having this paradigm that says, I'm going to agree with and choose to see the spirit and take it more as a valid thing to agree with than the natural. So there's times you might have to disagree with natural realities to agree with God. Does that make sense? And so that's what's happening here. And I just want to do, I, I nerd out just a little bit on some words, but it helps me and hopefully it'll help you. But the word faith shows up consistently throughout scripture. And there's a couple different words and they actually matter when you look at why did the writer use this word versus that word in faith. For instance, in John's gospel, the famous John 3.16 where, where Nicodemus is having a conversation with Jesus. And it says, for God so loved the world, Right? that he gave his only son for whoever believes in him may not perish but have, ever, have everlasting or eternal life. You know the famous passage, right? That word believe is the word faith. It's the same word, but that word is pisteo. And pisteo means to have like this, this um, it's more than just lip service. It's, it's a, first of all, it's a verb, not a noun. And so it's like active. It's a type of faith that says, I live this way because I have this belief system. So it's more than just an ascension of beliefs. Because if you ask people in our culture in America, because of how our culture works, we'd say, what do you believe? Oh, they say, I believe this, 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 this. And they give you a list of ascended thoughts they adhere to, but not necessarily their life aligns to it. They're not actively living it out where you can actually see how it manifests in their everyday life. But in the New Testament, to use any word of faith literally means you are living according to a conviction. Does this make sense? So you can't say, oh, I believe this and not actually live according to it, according to the Bible. But yet in our culture, people say they believe every, anything and everything and whatever, and yet their lives don't necessarily reflect anything of what comes out of their mouth. Is that fair to say? But we want to be people that our, our words align with our life and our lifestyle, that we have this kind of stereotype faith that is agreed. And this word actually shows up 98 times just in the gospel of John alone, which speaks to the importance or significance of this kind of faith, right? But the word that shows up in Hebrews 1 that we're studying is pistis. And this word is very similar to pisteo, but it actually has an extra additive influence. So what this word does is it's living this, say this word with me, active trust. I think that's my best definition of what this means active trust. It's putting your full devotion and trust in God and it requires activation. It requires a lifestyle change or a behavior change. And this word pistis, it's an active trust that also has a sense of longevity or fidelity or loyalty to God. So it's not a type of faith that's a one-time faith, but it's evidence of a long-time faith. Long obedience in the same direction. May it be said of us, May be said of me, may be said of you, may be said of our church that we are people of long obedience in the same direction. That our, our faith isn't just this one moment of courage faith, though yes, give us the courage when we need it, Lord. But it's this timeline and record keeping of, man, there's a consistency of a fidelity, of a loyalty to the person of God where you're having a yes and amen day in and day out in our faith. That's the kind of faith that we see 
and Hebrews 11, 1. Then 11, uh, uh, Hebrews 11, 2 then says that these, it says we commend or applaud or give approval to these men of old who have lived this kind of faith. And then it gives an example, verses 3 through 12 talks about Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. And it talks about how they, they, uh, they operated in this sort of active trust and fidelity towards God. Like there was this consistent faithfulness or faith towards the Lord. And, it, and then it says that they were commended. They were, God was pleased with them. And that's where we get even in, in Hebrews eleven six. it actually says it's impossible to please God without faith. And we want to be a people who please the Lord. So we want to be people who are increasingly growing in our faith in the Lord, our active trust towards the Lord and our fidelity and consistency in the way that we live our lives. And then we pick up here in verse 13. It says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So all these people, it's referring to Abel, Enoch, Abraham, and Noah. So, hey, all these guys that we just sat there and said God is pleased with, that God approves of them, that their faith is incredible, it then says all these people still living by faith when they died. So they lived their whole life. They, they ended well. Oh, another let it be said of us. May we end better than we started and may we end well, right? They ended well. But then it says they did not receive the things they promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. This creates a, a rub in me. And I don't know if you're hearing it right and maybe I'm hearing it wrong, but when I keep studying this, I can't get past a rub. They did not see the fullness of what was promised them. What do we do with that? God is pleased with the way they lived. They ended well, and they didn't see the fullness of the promises that they were believing for. How do we handle that as people who want to put faith in God? How do we handle that who, who have dreams that we believe God's given us? things to aspire to or to ask God and, and even be specific. You know what the Bible tells us to ask specifics to God? He even says to annoy him when we ask for things. He gives an example about like a neighbor who has a bunch of guests show up out of nowhere and they don't have enough food so they go to the neighbor's house and they're like, give me food. My neighbor, I have guests and I wasn't prepared. And they're like, go to bed. And they're like, no, 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 please, I have guests. It's the middle of the night. And he's like, go to bed. And finally, like, okay, we'll give you whatever you want as long as we can just go back to bed, right? Like there's this silly little story that's in the gospels about this. And this is exactly what God is saying, how we should ask specifics and annoy him about things in our life. Like we should have faith of promises and dreams and hopes and desires. There is a right alignment with God where we're saying, God, I'm believing for this specific thing that I believe you put on my heart. And yet, the people we are to model our faith around did not see the fulfillment completely of all the promises that they had in their life. So is God a liar? Is, is putting our trust in him in vain? What do we do when these things happen? How do we reconcile the fact that I ask this question because as a pastor who meets with people on a regular basis, there's a common conversation that comes up where they're saying, I really trusted God and I really put my hope in God and then this thing happened, fill in the blank. 
And now everything that I thought of him is now up in the air. And now God's character and his trustworthiness and my ability to put faith in him is now shaky. Has anyone in here felt that experience with God? I have. But this is, this is what we're, we're in the hall of faith and we're saying, let's be like these heroes in the Lord. And then all of a sudden we're coming to this reality where it's like, it tells us clear, not everything's gonna turn out the way you expect. And that's where we have to have a humility, first of all, about our expectations, where we can fully devote and put our faith in the nature of God and hold loosely the outcomes of God, right? I mean, we, there has to be this re- revelation that sometimes we also hear in part is what 1 Corinthians 14 tells us, meaning we don't hear God perfectly. So the things that we think God put on our heart might be our own desires and ambitions. It doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, but it might not be his plans and purposes, right? And there has to be this reality that life with God does not mean life without trial. I mean, name a character in the Bible where it says, God gave me this dream, this vision, this word, this promise, and all of a sudden it looks like they go in complete opposite direction of what you would think is the most direct path to that promise. I mean, name, you know, Joseph, I mean, name a person, right? They're like, I'm going to be a leader and ruler of all these people, and then he goes to prison. And you're going, that seems backwards, right? So there has to be this humility that we have to choose to, to give up our understandings. We relinquish our right to understand God's plans or God's means to have his promises fulfilled. Because I will say, God fulfills promises. It's not that Abraham would say nothing that God promised didn't happen. We can look at Abraham's life and see that many things consistently happened in Abraham's life that God promised. First of all, that his wife Sarah had a baby when they were really old. And that he had massive blessing and favor, had many kids with great many generations. And he said that he was going to have as many children as the sands on the seashores or the stars in the sky, right? That was the promise that God gave him. And even if you think about today, how many people in the world consider Abraham a father in their faith? Even outside the Christian faith. Jews, Islam, the majority of the world consider him a father of their faith. Right? So God fulfills promises, but there has to be a humility for us to continue to stay the course because this is the deal. If we start to obey God based on outcome and not on the person of God, we are going to get jaded. We will become disillusioned because nothing is going to happen exactly as you want it to happen. It just won't happen. You're going to have trials. Outcomes are going to be different than you expect. And that's with Jesus or without him. So if you are going through a trial, you want to do the trial with him. Because his promise is, I'm with you. That's his promise. Not that everything's easy. The whole like storm, right? When you're standing on, the, on, the, on sand or standing on a solid rock, it's not that the solid rock avoids the storm. It's when the storm comes, you'll still be standing because you're standing on the rock. On, the rock is the person of God. My faithfulness isn't, God, I'll do this if you do this outcome for me. My faithfulness is, God, you are worthy of a devoted, surrendered life. You have that in me, and I ask that you take care of me as I pursue you and obey you. So when the trials come, I know who to cling to. Amen? This is what God is speaking as we walk through. It makes me think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
I know it's been hijacked by kids' ministry, and I'm taking it back. It's a great story, and it's a true story about these three guys. They're between 18 and 20 years old. They're going against the leader of the known world, the most terrifying tyrant ever probably in history. This guy was, Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude. And then he creates this 90-foot-tall by 9-foot-wide golden statue. Could you imagine that? 90-foot-tall golden statue. You know how much I think it would have cost? But that's a whole other side thought. But, and then he tells everybody has to bow down to it and worship it. And they say, we're not going to do that. Right? And, and, and he says, if you don't, I'm going to throw you into a furnace. Like, I'm going I'm to kill you. And it's going to be a bad death. And, they, and, he, and he even taunts him and says, and no gods can rescue you from that. That's what he says to him. And this is their response in Daniel 3, verses 16. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Their faith wasn't in an outcome, it was in the God they serve. Because we know it's not an outcome because this is what they go. And he says, because they say, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But read the next part. But even if he does not, can you say that with me? But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up against us. May our faith be even if he does not kind of faith. God, I trust you. I'm believing for this promise. I have in my mind this expectation or this idea of what this looks like and I'm all in with whatever you say, whatever you're doing, whatever your heart's beating for, my heart is gonna beat for it. Whatever you're thinking, I wanna learn to think like you think and I'm gonna move in that direction. But even if you do not make it look the way I think it's gonna look, I'm still gonna follow you. Even if the outcome is more difficult than I expect it, I'm gonna follow you. Even if it means there are trials ahead of me to obey you, I'm still gonna do it. This is the, but even if he does not kind of faith that I think God wants to raise up in the church, he wants a church with a backbone and not weak faith. Because economies collapse, people lose jobs, people die, life hurts. And he wants to find a people who are fully devoted to him. When all the rubble and the dust settles, what people are still standing because they say, my, my, my faith wasn't on the outcomes around me or even my ability to understand my life around me. But my, my, my faith was devoted on a person and his name is Jesus. That is where my hope is found, right? That's, I mean, you think about the disciples. Peter says, where else could we go? Who else has the words of life? And Peter died being crucified upside down. Do we understand what we're talking about? Life is gonna happen. May our devotion be found in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's not trying to minimize your pain or the trials that you face in this life but it's giving us a paradigm of a much bigger picture. It's saying, if you look at the timeline of eternity, what you're experiencing is real and as painful as it is now, it's light and momentary compared to eternity, right? That's what it's saying here. It says, verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's going to that very definition that we just read in Hebrews 11.1 1, about faith. That it's about believing in the supernatural spiritual realm and making that more true than the natural. Let's continue on in, in Hebrews 11. 
So starting at the end of verse 13, it says, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth, it says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. So it's speaking about these men of faith from early creation that we're supposed to model our faith after. It says that they lived with a paradigm that was very different. They didn't think about just the here and now and the, and the, and the, the country they were currently living in, but they had their mind on a different country, one they actually hadn't yet been to, a better one, a heavenly one. They had heaven on their mind. So as they were making decisions, as they were choosing what to put their trust in or not, how to live their lives in everyday context, they said, what does this look like in the context of heaven, of a heavenly country? And what I love is in verse 14 where it says, people who say such things so that they're looking for a country of their own, that word country there, another little Greek nerdy moment here is patrice. And patrice is, is like fatherland, and it actually is the same Greek root word that we get the word father. So what it's saying is they were looking for a country where their father is. Like, because where father is, is where home is. So even in the phrasing of this, the author of Hebrews is trying to tell you that if you want to find your home, find it wherever God is, where a heavenly father is. So as you're making your decisions, it's not about trying to live here and now and trying to create this comfort here. This is, maybe it's because I've been on 10 flights, so give grace for this analogy, but we are in mid-flight right now. That's where we are. We are mid-flight. We're already taking off, but we have not reached our destination of our heavenly country. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you know how awkward it would be if in one of these flights, I put my suitcase down and I'm sitting down next and I'm like, and I'm a big guy, so I'm like this in the seat. But then I pull out a hammer, which maybe I'd get arrested, but for the analogy, hang in there. So I pull out a hammer and a little nail and I tack on the seat back in front of me, the nail, and I take a family portrait and I hang it up. And then I pull out curtains and I start to decorate my window. Like if I started making my home in my flight seat that's mid-flight, that would be a bit absurd, would it not? That's what we're doing when we try to make earth our home. When we try to have the paradigm that this is it, no, we are mid-flight. We have to have a paradigm of heaven being our home, that this is, only to, to, this is all in the means to get to an end where Jesus is forever and we are with him forever and sin is no more and there's no longer tears and eyes. Trials no longer exist. Suffering and pain is no longer a reality because God has come and redeemed the world. That is what we're, our aim is unto. So when we experience trials, we have this paradigm that says this is temporary. I am mid-flight. There's grace for this trial because it is not the end. Because God promises that good is for me and good is my end. So this is just a temporary thing until the end. And it gives us a grace to endure when we're in those mid-flight chaos moments of trials. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of this and another way of saying it, it says this in verse one. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. So it's kind of like this earthly body or this earthly reality. For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. There's that word again, that longing. Same, same passage from Hebrews 11. We talked about how we long for a heavenly, a heavenly country, a, a country not our own. Here's that longing again. It says, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because we, are, because 
When we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what he's doing here is Paul's writing to the church of Corinth and he's telling them the very thing I'm telling you right now. This is temporary. Like this earthly dwelling is fading away. Do not lose sight of the heavenly calling that we all have. There's a heavenly reality that he's challenging us to live for. And I'm telling you right now, if you try to make this world your home, it's gonna bring nothing but grief. Another just kind of example in my mind that came to, came to me was like, it's like trying to rearrange furniture on a deck of a ship that's sinking. Like we're out there trying to make our lives as comfortable and as neat and as much like what we want as we can. When at the end of the day, the boat's going down. And it's like, why are you doing that? Like, that's just silly. That's a silly, useless endeavor. You're exerting all that energy and you're wasting your life. If you're gonna waste your life, waste it on God because that has eternal rewards, right? And so I just, I just wanna plead with you. There's this, there's this reality that we're going to feel a rub as believers on this earth because we are aliens to this earth. As you follow Jesus, you're gonna notice, oh, my priorities don't align with the culture around me. And my values aren't aligning with my poli- like the politics of this world or name the thing that's speaking so loudly and pressing so hard against you. But we are aliens. We are foreigners not met for this world. So our values and our, our lifestyle and our decisions should look different because we are operating out of an active trust and fidelity, a faith towards God that supersedes conditions. They, super, they supersede outcomes. Because our devotion to Jesus isn't predicated upon, oh, I'll do this, God, if you do this for me. When you start to barter, you're already realizing that your faith is not real faith at all. You're just looking for a get-ahead-quick scheme with God. And God's like, no. When you follow me, son or daughter, what you get is me. (laughs) That's what God's saying. More than a more comfortable life, more than a better outcome, When you follow Jesus, you get Jesus. Have we lost sight of what that means? Have we lost sight of how significant it is that the creator of the universe wants to know you personally and care for you and tend to your heart and that he is concerned with you? Another phrase that keeps coming up as I've been praying for us this week is, just the the issue of entitlement in our culture and how we feel like we're entitled to things. And I feel like that entitlement issue in our culture where we're entitled to our opinion and our voice and we feel like we can just smear people and do whatever we want, whenever we want. And what's good for you is good for you and follow your heart. And just all that, you'll never read that in the Bible. The Bible does not say follow your heart. (laughs) It says it's deceitfully wicked. There is no cure. Who can help it? That's what the Bible says about hearts, right? But yet we have this entitlement attitude of like, I should get what's mine. When the Bible teaches that you were to lay down your life, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. The Bible teaches that what we're entitled to is hell because of the sin that we've caused and it separates us from a good and loving and just God. But in his great mercy, he died for us. In his great mercy, he sent his one and only son so that he might redeem you back to himself. And then we stand before him and say, well, I'll follow you if you do this for me. Yeah, I'll receive the death of your son on the cross for salvation and a new car and a a pay raise. 
and a, I don't know, whatever we sit there and barter with God about, a more comfortable situation. When we, do you not realize what he's done for us? Have we forgotten so quickly of the extravagant nature of which he's gone to save us? Something we would never do for ourselves or for anyone else. But yet he was willing to do it for us. And then there's not just the entitlement thing that I'm like, God, I don't want to be entitled. I want to have an unentitled faith, an unconditional faith that says not only if I get this or that, but God, I want to be all in. But Lord, also I have a, I have a fear that I'm going to stand before you. And I've been, I've been listening to this song and this song is called You Remain. And I've been playing on repeat like crazy. And the bridge of it, it says, it says this passage, it says, when I see your face, so this is talking about the day we stand before God in heaven, when our life is done and the plane lands. And we're now standing at the judgment seat of Christ before the Lord, that each one of us will stand before God and have to address him with our life. And it says this, when I see your face, I'll wish I'd given more away. So don't let me waste a trial. Don't let me miss a chance to praise. And I've been listening to that over and over and over again going, God, may it not be that when I'm standing before you at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm sitting there going, man, I'm glad. I I don't think I'm gonna sit there and go, man, I really regret not being more about myself. I wish I had a bigger house when I was on earth. I wish I would have made my job my highest priority over the Lord and my family and community. I wish I would have fill in the blank. I think, I, my, I think the reality is we're gonna stand before God going, God, I wonder what else I could have laid down for you. I wonder, I wonder what else thing of faith I could exercise an active trust towards you that I could have done just in that, that momentary life, that blip on the radar that is this human existence. God, I wonder what else I could have given away. And Lord, all those times when I went through trials where I cursed you, I, I regret not giving opportunity to praise you in the midst of the trial. You know, we won't have that opportunity in heaven. We won't be able to praise God through suffering in heaven because suffering won't exist in heaven. That is an offering we can give God only in this life. Let's not waste it, but let's give it wholeheartedly to the Lord. Because this is the outcome. Hebrews 11, verse 16. This is the culmination of what this writer is writing in this passage. He says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because their trust in him wasn't predicated upon an outcome. But it was a whole life, even to their death, remained faithful trust in the Lord, even if circumstances were one way or the other. And God's like, I'm so pleased by that. I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Lord, may you not be ashamed to call us your people and that you're our God. And finishing up in that second Corinthians passage that we read earlier, picking up back up in verse four, it says, for while the, this is where it's talking about these tents, these earthly homes. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be clothed, unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, guaranteeing of a heavenly home as we put our trust in Jesus. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Verse seven, listen to this. For we live by faith, not by sight. 
We are confident, I say, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home of the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him. There's a resolve God's inviting us into this morning. I make it a goal to please you with my life, God. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And this is the last thing. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This message is hopefully something that you're getting that is pushing you outside of the tunnel vision of your momentary circumstance. It is getting you to knock down the walls of just me and myself. The, the prayer I've been praying, and this is just a prayer uh, I didn't share earlier, but I wanna share now. But the, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind is this idea. I want to serve the Lord until it supersedes the way I serve myself. God, would you teach us to serve you at such a level that we get faded away in the background? That this life isn't about me and this life isn't about you. It's about the King and his kingdom to come. And our good is when we align with the King and his kingdom to come. And it's our demise if we do not. And we're only gonna create more grief as we're trying to decorate our seat in the mid-flight. And so my prayer is that there's a wrestle in each one of us this morning, that we would have a holy discontentment with the world around us because we recognize greater and greater measure that we are aliens, we're foreigners, we're not made for this earth. And that there's a heavenly paradigm we're called to live in and live with that isn't just momentary courages of faith, but long fidelity, long obedience in the same direction of faith with God every day. Will you stand with me, please? I wanna invite uh, our ministry team to come forward. Um, as we respond to Jesus, please don't wrestle and just leave, but wrestle and respond to God. Transformation happens when we respond to his initiation. And right now, God is here. And he's after your heart. And he's after your mind. And he's after your future. And he's after your paradigm. And he's, he's not okay with you making this life being about you. And that's not him being insulting. He just actually knows that your best is when you make it about him. Your most joy and satisfaction is found when you're all about giving him glory. And some of us have been in a wrestle with God. That's what I feel like the Lord spoke when we were praying about this time. I felt like God said there's, there's wrestling happening in this room where people are trying to decide how much of themselves they're gonna let die and how much of God they're gonna let live in them. And I just wanna say, die completely. <laughs> That might sound brutal, it might sound harsh, but I'm telling you, those who try to save their life, lose it. But those who lose their life for Christ's sake, they're the ones who find it. That's when real living happens. And sometimes that's even for the Christian who's walked with Jesus for 20 years and you find yourself slowly starting to grasp and grip for your own self and your own glory and your own comfort. And you're, you're starting to say no more to the Lord and yes, more to yourself. And we have to then once again, as believers say, I let go again. I surrender again, Jesus. And my prayer for us is that when we see him face to face, when this flight lands, there won't be these regrets of, man, I wish I would have given more away. Man, I wish I would have 
not made it so much about myself, but there'd be this great privilege of saying, God, I have been and I continue to be all yours. No matter the outcomes, no matter the circumstances, no matter how the promises are filled the way I want them to or not, I'm all in because my devotion isn't to an outcome, but it's to a person and his name is Jesus. So I just wanna invite you to respond. If you need to come down in the front and just kneel down and just get real with Jesus, come do that. Come just get on your knees and start crying out to God and repent for ways you've made things about yourself. If you need someone to get in your boat and pray with you, we have this incredible team of people that love to pray with people. Come and get prayer, but don't leave without doing business with God. So Jesus, we love you. We honor you. And we say, we're all in. We Sign us up again, Jesus. For the believers in the room, I just ask that you say that. Sign me up again. God, I sign up again to laying down my life, picking up my cross and following you. To live for Christ is a privilege. To die is gain. I want, I want to live for you now. This is a, a short flight and, a, and, and, a, and a, the concept of eternity. This is so temporary, God. And we want to be those who are fully devoted to you who live lives surrendered to you, that have active trust in the person of God. I'm speaking, God, for generational faithfulness in Jesus' name, that from one generation to the next, they'd be handing down a mantle of faithfulness. I speak that over the parents and the grandparents in the room, that you would grow in your faithfulness to God, that you would increase in your givenness to Jesus, not decrease or become stagnant as age gets older. But then you would be able to give to the next generation a mantle of faithfulness to show what long obedience looks like. I pray for testimonies of faithful living in Jesus' name. And I pray for the younger demographic in the room that we would get over ourselves in Jesus' name and that we would see to live for Christ is worth it. And then we'd say, God, I pick up that mantle and I choose to live long obedience in the same direction. I choose to live a faithful life. I choose to be devoted to Jesus, whether I get what I want or not. It's not about me, but it's about the King and his kingdom and his glory. And I pray, Father, that we'd be those who charge faithfully ahead with confidence that our God is good and trustworthy. And so we put our full devotion to you. God, would you come? Would you speak? Would you minister to us? And may we leave encouraged to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the Lord.